Well, last week, brothers and sisters, we saw and considered um, Moses' incredible boldness of faith. Um, Spurgeon referred to it as the greatest stretch of faith I ever heard of. Um, coming from Spurgeon, that's pretty good. That's, that, that, that means something if Spurgeon says it. We saw this great stretch of faith when Moses asked God, please show me your glory. We considered that Moses asked to see God's glory because God's glory and his presence are intertwined with one another, such that where, it, where God is, he manifests his glory, and where his glory is, you have his presence as well. God, having confirmed to Moses in the previous passage that his presence would indeed go up with Israel and Moses into the promised land, Moses asked, please show me your glory, asking for a confirmation of this promise by way of a special manifestation of God's glorious presence, such as he had never seen before. Furthermore, we considered that Moses asked this, um, not out of doubt, perhaps as Gideon asking for a sign, nor did he ask this to satisfy vain curiosities, to look into things which, um, quite frankly, he had no business looking into, but rather he asked it with a boldness of childlike faith, as a child would ask their father or maybe perhaps especially their grandparents. I think, I think we, can, we can see a boldness with grandparents, maybe more than with, with parents. But as a child who asks their father, knowing they will refuse no good thing to them. Today, we are going to look at a part of that good thing that God gave to Moses, and oh boy, is it a good, good thing. All in all, God gives Moses an incredible display of his goodness. It comes with an unfathomable, visible manifestation of his glorious transformation, of such that Moses had never had, because Moses never shined like he will after this, as we're told at the end of chapter 34. His face shines. When he comes down off the mountain, the people are afraid of him. They don't know what he is. Is he God? Is he an angel? Such is the visible manifestation of God's goodness that he gives to Moses. Furthermore, God also gives a proclamation of his name and his nature to Moses. Today, it is specifically this last aspect that we will focus on. Not so much what God shows of himself, though we'll consider that in a later sermon in more detail, but today we'll focus on what he says of himself. As we'll see, although you and I today shall not see what Moses saw on that day, as cool as that would be, though one day we'll see something greater, I think, yet we, ha we shall hear the same words that we heard, that he heard. And though we won't see what he saw, I don't think we'll think at the end of looking at this passage that we got the short end of the stick. Just receiving the words that Moses received is a feast, particularly in verses 6 through 8. Moses indeed made a large request of God, but God is not to be outdone. And God's manifestation of his goodness is far greater than Moses' bold request, as bold as it is. Indeed, it's not a stretch to say, brothers and sisters, that what God gives Moses and us in this passage is the greatest revelation 
of his merciful heart in all of Scripture, only second to the actual coming of Christ. Let's say that again. What God gives us in this passage is the greatest revelation of his merciful heart towards sinners in all of Scripture, second only to the actual coming of Jesus Christ, which is mercy incarnate. It's interesting that the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, um, in his excellent book, it has a very Puritan-y title. It sounds very technical, but it's very good. It's really funny. You noticed in a lot of Puritan republications, they give it a much catchier title. You know what I mean? It's like, Mercy for Sinners. Well, he called it the object and acts of justifying faith, okay? That's kind of a technical-sounding title. He starts off by describing the object of justifying faith, that faith by which a sinner is justified. What is its object? In other words, what does it grab hold of and rest in and trust in? And he says there are namely two. First, Christ, of course, as you might expect, But first and foremost, he says, actually, the great mercy within God's own heart. In fact, he argues that the mercy of God should be considered before the Son, because while the Son is undeniably the mercy of God incarnate, yet it was the mercy within the Father's own heart which sent the merciful Son. It preceded the sending of the merciful Son. He says, above all other inducements and supporters unto faith, the consideration of the mercies in God's heart and nature is the strongest, the most winning, and the most obliging. In other words, brothers and sisters, the strongest inducement that you and I can have to flee to God rather than fleeing from God is getting a picture of His merciful heart. What we have in this passage is just such a picture. When Goodwin goes on to prove his assertion from Scripture, he chooses only one passage. And in fact, he goes out of his way to say, I only need one passage. And of course, it's Exodus 34, verses 6 through 8. He explains that he only needs this one for good reason. This proclamation of grace being a Magna Carta of the Old Testament was so highly valued by the prophets and saints of those times that ever after it was proclaimed to Moses, they had, throughout all ages, frequent recourse thereto, and their practice was to make rehearsals of it, especially in point of forgiveness. Modern English, all saints throughout history and in Scripture after this point go back to these great promises and this great picture of God's merciful heart again and again. He goes on to give a brief survey, somewhat long, but it's very good, so bear with me. He says, Moses made use of it immediately when God was done proclaiming it on behalf of Israel. That's true, we just read that. He prays one more time for Israel. And the same Moses makes use of it in after times. That's also true. Not too long after this, when God's going to take Israel into the promised land, they become fearful, they rebel, they say no, they pick up stones to throw against Moses. God comes in his glory and interposes and protects Moses. Moses prays and he says, and now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, 
The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, etc. Goodwin says, Next comes David, who although he had a personal covenant of sure mercies made particularly to himself, nevertheless he had a usual recourse unto this more general refuge. That's true as well. In fact, if you'll notice, some of the Psalms we read I chose specifically because they recount um, parts of this revelation in verses 6 through 8. Our opening psalm says this as well. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. David does this several times throughout the psalms. Goodwin continues. But we meet not with these words only in David, but as frequently also in the prophets. As Jeremiah in that solemn prayer for the church in the condition it was in his times. The prophet Joel lays it as a foundation and cornerstone of faith and hope to persuade people to turn to God. Yea, Jonah points plainly unto these words. That's actually a funny example. Jonah gets the undesirable distinction. Poor guy, he's a true believer. We'll meet him one day. The undesirable distinction of being the only person in all of Scripture to complain about God's merciful nature. Because God shows mercy to those dang Ninevites. When he does so, he actually records these words. Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Ah! Goodwin caps it all off. The prophet Micah brings in a piece of it. Hezekiah, that holy king, writing to his brethren of the twelve tri ten tribes, inviting them to return to God, assures them that God would pardon and receive them again upon their repentance. And lastly, good Nehemiah, almost a thousand years after Moses, doth make mention of these words. And so you see, he says, I have traveled from Moses to the last of Old Testament records. And though a thousand other promises be given between, yet still this above all is rehearsed as the original of all others, hmm. the original, the source, the fountain. This is the greatest. Well, it is to this original of all other promises we turn today, brothers and sisters. Let's go ahead and dive right in. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 34. We will, uh, in an, as I said in another sermon later, come back to kind of pick up with the very end of chapter 33, particularly. What does that mean that Moses can see God, but only his back and not his face? We'll, we'll look at that. Um, but we will look primarily at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 34. But let's begin in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Now here again, we see the connection between God's promising his presence will go up with Israel and his being in covenant with them. He has not yet explicitly said, I will take Israel back in covenant. He has simply said, my presence will go with you. But the implication is, my covenantal presence will go with you. And so we see he tells Moses, 
to make two new tablets of stone because the covenant is going to be renewed, as we'll see in another time. Verse 2. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. Now, just as a minor thing here, but it is interesting to note, at the end of the previous chapter, God told Moses, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Here, no mention of the rock is made. Moses is simply told to come to the top of Mount Sinai. The reason for that is that most likely the the term rock is actually a reference to the mountain itself. In Hebrew, um, sometimes rock can be used metaphorically um, or just in a bigger sense to refer to a mountain as well. So, for example, we see this in some parallels. Consider these. Job 14, 18. The mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. See that? Isaiah 30, 29 speaks of going to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And so when the Lord says, come up and stand on top of this rock, he most likely means a cleft somewhere in the mountain. Um, And interestingly, after I read that, I was like, oh, when he strikes the rock, is that him just striking the mountain early on? We'll have to discuss that as another time. Most likely the rock is Mount Sinai, okay? Verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, is anyone here using an NASB? No? Great. Well, I'm still going to explain nevertheless because I think some people use it, though they're not here today. If you have the NASB, there's a slight discrepancy in what it actually says. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but, but... because another major translation does it, we'll look at it. The ESV says that the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. The NASB says, and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Now the reason for this discrepancy is because the phrase used in Hebrew when used by someone who is not God, is most typically and correctly translated as to call upon the name of the Lord. However, if we wanted to be even more precise than that, we could say the phrase um, more woodenly means not calling upon the name of the Lord, but rather invoking the name of the Lord. The Hebrew is literally to call in the name, b'shem to call in the name of the Lord, and it's the idea of invoking the name. You know, we don't really think about this all that much today. Perhaps, um, you know, maybe you'll see like, not a sci-fi movie, some other kind of movie where there's an evil character, they don't speak his name, right? Why? Well, if you invoke their name, somehow you invoke their presence, right? Right? Um, 
That's connected to the ancient understanding of prayer. That One of the reasons why you invoked the name of your God was because the name of your God is part of who he was. It's not merely a name. Um, by invoking his name, you invoke his presence, his, his power. Here, the same term is used, but I think we should understand it as the Lord is invoking his own name. And so although that typically means to call upon the Lord as a human to God, we could also say invoke, and the meaning is not that Moses did it, but that God invoked his own name. In fact, earlier um, in chapter 33 and verse 19, there it is very clearly Yahweh who is the one who invokes his own name, though the same phrase is used. He says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you my name, the Lord. More woodenly, God says, I will cry out in the name of the Lord. The funny thing is the NASB says there that it's actually Yahweh, although they flip back a few verses later. All that to say, um, for anyone listening online, um, I think the ESV is largely correct, and it means God is invoking his own name, okay? Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. Here we see that, first of all, God says his name Twice. Small thing, but something we should note. Throughout Scripture, names or titles are often repeated for some kind of special emphasis. At times, they can express compassion, maybe, maybe even affection or love towards someone. We see this all the time. We don't even really think about it. When Martha's all stressed out, what does Jesus say to her? Martha, Martha, you're concerned about many things, right? There's there's a compassion that comes in the, by saying it twice. It can also express great grief and pain. As when Christ cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Oh, there's grief and there's pain there. Here, I think it is most likely for the purpose of expressing majesty, and inspiring awe. We're not talking about any old God. We're talking about the Lord. The Lord. The Lord. Do you see what I'm saying? I was trying to think of a modern example, and the only dumb thing I could come up with is in California. If you're trying to really stress something, you go, do. Do. Okay? That's a dumb example. But you understand, the Lord, that's who we're talking about here, okay? He continues, a God merciful and gracious, merciful and gracious. You know, oftentimes when we speak of God's being merciful and gracious, or perhaps the mercy and the grace of God, it's very common to hear people say things like this. I don't, I don't think it's entirely wrong. I'm not faulting it. We might say, well, mercy is getting or is not getting what you do deserve, right? Meaning not getting the punishment you do deserve. We say that's mercy. By contrast, grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's getting that good thing which you don't deserve because you're a, a dirty, rotten sinner, right? Right? That's how we speak of grace and mercy. 
I don't think that's wrong, but I think the meaning here, when it says God is merciful and gracious, is far more profound. When we speak of God's mercy and his graciousness, these do not represent first and foremost God's actions, but rather the disposition and affections of his own heart. To put it another way, think of it this way. God is not merciful because he doesn't give us what we deserve. Rather, he doesn't give us what we deserve because he's merciful. The mercy is what motivates the heart. Nor is God gracious because he gives us what we don't deserve. Rather, wait. Okay, I got confused. You understand what I'm trying to say. I got, the heart goes before the action. <laughs> okay. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Okay, anyway. To put this more um, at a point of it, it speaks of a disposition of the heart from which actions flow. The word for merciful here is the Hebrew rachum. Rachum. It has the sense of affection or tenderness. It's often used to describe the most intimate of relationships, often the tenderness uh, or the affection that maybe a mother or a parent has for their child. It's that fluttery feeling, parents, that you have when you see your kids and they're not acting like monsters covered in boogers, and they're, but you just love them and your heart kind of flutters for a moment. That's mercy. That's affection and compassion. It can be used often to describe compassion in the sense of pity, especially in view of someone else's suffering. In this sense, it's a twinge of pain in one's own heart. You know, I think of myself when, uh, when we have to discipline Carlos, even at, oh, not even if he deserved it. Lord willing, we only do it when he deserves it. What I mean is, especially when he deserves it, okay? <laughs> anyway, um, you know, you discipline him. He deserved it. What he did was very rude. Maybe he did something mean or something. But then he gets disciplined, and you hear his cries, and his eyes well up with tears, and he makes his face. In, in, in Spanish, they're called pucheros. He goes, he goes like this, and he's holding back. He's trying to hold in his tears, and your heart just, oh, and you go, come here. I love you. You shouldn't have done that, but I love you, right? You can't stand to see that pain and that misery. That's mercy, right? It can be used elsewhere to describe being moved in the heart, moved to compassion, moved to pity, moved to love. For example, we're told of Joseph in Genesis 43. He lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin and his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. That's mercy and compassion. That's rachum. The word for gracious is the word hanun. Hanun is related to the Hebrew word which is the standard word for grace. Again, grace is not merely giving someone what they do not deserve, but again, it speaks more of the disposition of someone's heart. 
Cain is often translated as favor. In fact, more often than not, if you read the Old Testament phraseology, if I have found favor in your sight, may I find favor in the sight of my Lord, something like that, it's actually, may I find grace in your sight. It speaks of a kindness of heart towards someone, an affection, caring for them, even liking them in a certain sense. You know, I've told you before, I don't, I don't like to say, well, God doesn't, God doesn't just love you, he likes you, because that sounds very trite. But this kind of gets to that a little bit. It's, it's having affections for someone. For example, we're told in 1 Kings eleven nineteen there was a man named Hadad. He was an enemy of Solomon. We're told that he fled to Pharaoh in Egypt, and it says, and Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of the queen. I imagine he liked Hadad if he did that for him. He took a liking to him. Maybe he felt like this is my younger brother. He has, he has an affection in his heart. That's what grace is. That's what chen is, brothers and sisters. And so you see, yes, God mercifully does not give us what we deserve, but he does so because his heart is filled with mercy and moved towards compassion and pity. There's that twinge of pain, we might say, when he sees sinners and what they have become, foolishness, their ignorance, feeling the sting and pain of their dumb, foolish consequences, that causes the mercy of the Lord to not give them what they deserve. We see his grace not just that he gives us what we don't deserve, but that his heart is beaming full of kindness towards sinners. We might even say, not in a trite way, he likes them. He'll be merciful to them. He shows them favor, not for anything in themselves, but because he's gracious. It's a disposition of the heart. Next, we're told God is slow to anger. Slow to anger. He is incredibly patient towards us and our many failings. Peter once asked, as I said earlier, Lord, you can almost imagine poor Peter opining, like trying to look very, very wise. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, thinking it's a pretty good answer. And quite frankly, if someone's ever sinned against you and you've forgiven them seven times for the same sin, that's actually quite a lot of forgiveness. Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Why? Because that is God's own heart of slowness to anger. He is not just merciful and slow to anger seven times, though you sin against him, yet still 77 times he is slow to anger. I was reading in some Baptist records, all right, some people do this for fun. There was a question asked by a church to the other churches in the association. What is to be done for a brother who falls into the same sin time after time, even though after each time he falls, he seems genuinely sorrowful and repentant? What's to be done with such a person? Is there a certain point at which we cast him out? The association wisely, I think, said, 
If he be sorrowful for his sins and show genuine signs of repentance, you are not to throw him out. Though he sinned many times, you are to be patient with him. Why? Because that's the heart of God towards sinners. He's slow to anger. Next, it says, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. These two things form together what we call a hendiades, which is just Greek and it means uh, one through two. One through two. It's a single concept, a single idea that you use with um, uh, two terms together. An example of this would be like in the big snowstorm that came, you know, a couple years ago, whatever. You get all in, 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 inside in your house, you turn the heater up, maybe you still had power on. You get in a nice cozy blanket with hot cocoa. What are you? You're nice and warm. Nice and warm. It's a hendiades. It's a single concept. You're not saying, well, I was nice and warm. It just goes together. It's a hendiades. So also here, steadfast love and faithfulness. The term for steadfast love, um, you can almost kind of see the translators laboring to get at the sense of it. It's the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. It could be translated as love, but they often add several qualifiers to this because it's the concept of covenantal love and particularly a loyal love. It's often covenantal loyalty. Makes sense why it's coupled with faithfulness, abounding in covenantal loyalty, love, and faithfulness. His loyalty here is said to abound. He abounds in it. Literally in Hebrew, great chesed, much chesed and faithfulness. It is rich. He abounds in it. Psalm 105, For the Lord is good, His steadfast love, His chesed, endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. All generations. Abounding. This is probably also getting to the meaning of the first phrase in verse 7 of our chapter. It says, keeping steadfast love, chesed, for thousands. Thousands there should probably be understood more along the lines of thousands of generations. That's often how this is described. Um, Chesed, when it's described as being given to thousands, it's thousands of generations or so. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The implication being is it's boundless. It keeps going on. It's rich. That's good news, brothers and sisters, for sinners. That's good news for those whose hearts are are not abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but quite honestly, the opposite. Sinners whose hearts are abounding abounding in wandering love, not a loyal covenantal love. Hearts that wander in covenantal infidelity rather than fidelity and unfaithfulness chronically. That's good news. God doesn't. He abounds. 
The text continues. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The purpose of naming those three is to say forgiving all kinds of sin, all manner of sin, great and small. Sins towards God, sins towards man, sins of action, sins of the heart, transgression, iniquity, and sin, all of them shall be forgiven by the Lord. Lastly, it says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Uh-oh. Pastor, I thought this was about a mountain of mercy. We just ran into some law. We just ran into some justice and some wrath there. I thought this sermon was titled, The Lord, Friend of Sinners, but now we read not of his merciful, compassionate heart, but his justice. I knew it. I knew there was a catch somewhere. I knew it always comes down to law somewhere in there. Let me say very carefully, there is nothing in this text, even what we just read, that should be understood as somehow a discouragement for sinners from coming to the Lord. There's nothing in here that should make sinners flee from God. Everything in here should make them flee to God. You know, some people think, brothers and sisters, you hear them speak of God's grace and God's justice as though they need to balance each other out every now and then. They need to temper one another. Grace is good. Grace is good. But you need to add a little bit of law to that every now and then, lest it gets too carried away. Would we ever say that about justice? <laughs> God's justice is good, but every now and then he's allowed to flub and give a little grace. No, they're not opposed to one another, you see. God's mercy is infinite and his justice is infinite as well. We don't oppose the grace of God and the holiness of God like that. God's holiness puts no more limits on his grace than his, limit, than his grace limits his justice. And so I would say, if you come to this passage and all of a sudden you find discouragement, you're reading it wrong. And so often for so many hearts, although the, you give them 99 promises of grace, yet for the heart that struggles to grab hold and trust of the mercy of God, you give them the hundredth one of justice and that's the only one they can focus on can't go back. They can't see the greatness of it. It's not how this passage is meant to be understood. Thomas Goodwin is helpful here. He says that God gave this last phrase because he knew how much and how deeply the root of bitterness was seated in men's hearts to say, I shall have peace though I walk in the imagination of my heart. Deuteronomy 29, 19. And how apt they are to turn all this grace into wantonness. Therefore, it is at last, but only at the last, he brings in this high threatening that God will by no means clear the impenitent. In other words, this last phrase is for those who hear all the good stuff of God's mercy and who think to themselves, I don't, I don't care about that. They despise the mercy of God. Or they think, that's great, but I don't need the mercy of God. Or they think, that's great because I love sin. 
Oh, abounding in steadfast love? I abound in wickedness. This is the God for me. God says, don't understand me as that kind of God. This is not that kind of a mercy. I will by no means clear the guilty. But there's nothing in here meant to frighten penitent sinners. Thomas Goodwin gives the following arguments to prove this. I found this very helpful. He says, the subject matter of this proclamation consists chiefly of grace and mercy. It is true that justice comes in and has a place, but only afterwards. Mercy excels, exceeds, and is the prevailing argument. It's true. He says, the quotations that David so often and the prophets make of these words do confirm this. For they rehearse no other but only those that belong to mercy. That's true. When the saints record uh, and, and rehearse these words, in fact, the most common phrase that they rehearse is that God is mer uh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Those four things are what you'll see repeated everywhere in Scripture. But they don't get hung up on the last part. They don't see it as somehow a sign that they can't trust this God. No, they come and take from this passage that this is a merciful God they can run to. Next, Goodwin says, the season which God was pleased to take advantage of is most observable. It was this. This people had immediately before committed that greatly heinous sin of making and worshiping the golden calf. In other words, remember the context. God is giving his people comfort. He's affirming and confirming that they will once again have his covenantal love and presence. He's meant to welcome sinners, not trying to get them to run away. Only those who would seek to abuse his mercy and despise it. Furthermore, and think about this, I don't think Jonah would after all have been displeased with what God says here if it were meant to be a blanket threatening to sinners right? Remember, he complains, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Someone might say, well, Jonah, don't worry about it, bud, remember? He will by no means clear the guilty. We're going to get those Ninevites after all, all right? Jonah doesn't go there. Why? Because he knows that doesn't apply to the Ninevites. Why? Because the Ninevites repented and came to God and humbled themselves. It's not threatening those kinds of sinners. Those kinds of sinners are welcome. It's the ones who abuse and despise the mercy of God. So Jonah knows ah, God's going to show them mercy. Furthermore, even if, though it's not true, even if mercy and justice were being opposed to one another, mercy would still win. Goodwin says, unto those acts of justice specified, there are bounds and limits set. Meaning, God says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children, unto the third and the fourth generation, but he shows steadfast love to thousands of generations. You see the ratio there? It doesn't even come close. Goodwin says, Mercy may triumph and say, if justice be avenged twofold, mercy is gracious sevenfold and carries it clear. And last of all, 
One of the ways we know that this was by no means meant to discourage sinners, discourage those who are seeking God and asking for pardon, is because Moses, immediately upon hearing these words, continues to pray for sinful Israel. Look at verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst for us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. He was all the more encouraged to come to the Lord, not discouraged. So, brothers and sisters, what we have here is, as I have said, nothing short but a mountainous display of God's open heart for sinners. His great mercy, His great compassion and kindness and love towards sinners. In conclusion, for some application, let us consider the following things. First, let this passage, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, induce you, persuade you, soften you, turn you to repent from sin and turn to God. Let these words encourage you that if you turn to God, I surrender, going over to the other side, he's not going to fire upon you. He will receive you. He is gracious and merciful. This passage is so often cited throughout history, history of God's people as calling them back to the Lord. God says in Joel 2, 12 through 13, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Or when Hezekiah reinstitutes the Passover, he calls his fellow Israelites, let us return to the Lord. We've been abandoning the true worship. We've been apostatizing. Let's return to the Lord. He says to them, do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourself to the Lord and come to this sanctuary which he has consecrated forever and serve the Lord your God that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord... Your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. You children here who don't yet know the Lord, those of you who have not yet uh, grown in, in faith and assurance, maybe you say, I don't yet know the Lord as my parents talk about knowing the Lord. I don't yet know him. Be encouraged by God's own words here today. Let them encourage you to come to him. There's nothing you have to do, children, to prepare yourself to come to him. You simply have to come. Don't think, well, I don't know if I'm serious enough about this. Maybe one day when I'm older, I'll get really serious about religion and God and stuff. I don't know if I'm serious enough yet. I don't know if I truly mourn my sin like I ought. Quite honest, if, I, if I'm honest, I don't actually mourn it all that much. 
I know I'm a sinner, but it doesn't bother my heart as much, so I don't know if I mourn it enough to come to God. I don't know if I have humbled myself enough like so-and-so. I must first humble myself before I can come to this God. You're looking within your own heart for a reason to come when all the reasons to come are in God's own heart displayed in this chapter. If you keep looking at your heart, you will never find a reason to come to God. If you look at God's heart, full of mercy, full of compassion, full of kindness and favor for sinners, you will find nothing but reasons to come to Him. So turn away from your own heart all the ways in which you're not ready and look at all the ways in which this very moment He is ready to receive you and come to Him and you will be forgiven and saved. One Scotsman, Hugh Binning, said, No, saith the convinced soul. I know not if God will be merciful to me, for what am I? There is nothing in me to be regarded. I have nothing to find favor with him. But, saith the Lord, I am gracious and merciful. I dispense mercy freely without respect to your condition. Do not say, if I was as humble as so and so, if I loved him more, if I had more godly sorrow and repentance, then he would be merciful to me. Say not so, for behold, he is gracious, and he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and grace upon whom he will show grace. There is no other cause, no motive, but what comes from within his own heart. He continues. Perhaps some, someone says, but I have gone on long in sin. I have been a presumptuous sinner. Can he endure me any longer? Well, he says, hear what the Lord saith. I am long-suffering and slow to anger. And if he had not been so, we would all have been damned long ago. Amen. (laughs) But patience hath a long term. We cannot outrun it. We cannot outweary it. But, saith the doubting soul, I am exceeding wicked, and it so abounds in me that there is nothing in me but wickedness. It so abounds in me that there is none like me. But, saith the Lord, I am abundant in goodness. I am as abundant in goodness and grace as thou art in sin, nay, infinitely more. Thy sin is but the transgression of a finite creature. My mercy, the compassion of an infinite God, it will swallow it up. So you see, brothers and sisters, you have nothing but to come to him. You children who do not know the Lord, you have nothing but to come to him and only receive everything from him. If you want confirmation of this, if you want the truest display, if you want to see what this looks like to quite literally put some flesh on these promises, then look at Jesus Christ, the only greater display of God's mercy in all of Scripture. In Jesus, the mercy and compassion of the Father is displayed Perfectly. Speaking of great crowds that follow him, he said, 
I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. In Jesus you see great grace and favor of God, as John says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In Christ you have the tremendous long-suffering slowness to anger of the Father as he's crying out of the cross while being mocked, being spit upon. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In Christ you have the abundant steadfast love and faithfulness of God as we're told in John 13. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And in Christ... You see, the forgiveness of great sins saying of the sinful woman, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And so if you need one more confirmation that God will be merciful to you, look to the merciful Son that the merciful Father sent. This is why Christ says to the Father in John 17, 26, I have made known to them your name. That name, the Lord, the Lord. Jesus says, I have made it known. How? Because he is God. He is the picture of mercy and everything declared in verses 6 through 8. Come to the merciful Son who will take you to the merciful Father. Lastly, Christians, or even unbelievers, crying out for mercy, take the words of this text and make them your own in your own pleas for mercy. You see the psalmists do this all the time. Psalm 86, 15 through 16. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Take all of these with you. And I would say, if there's one thing you really want to memorize in all this, you can even memorize it in Hebrew. It's not that hard. It's actually pretty easy. Memorize the phrase. Get this into your heart. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That is the heart. That is the nugget that everyone takes from this. And you see again and again in Scripture those four things in particular. Plead with God by those four things. Lastly, come to the Lord. Look at his merciful heart and come. There's nothing in here that says, don't come to me, but everything that says, come, I will receive you. Let's pray. God, you are so merciful. Truly, Lord, I imagine, although Moses understood he had made a great petition, I don't think he fully understood the greatness that you would bestow upon him in these words and in the manifestation of your glory. Father, may we take this description of you and your heart to heart. I pray, Father, that no one here today would not see your heart of love for them, your heart of kindness heart of gentleness and mercy. May you refresh your saints with it. May you refresh them when perhaps they fall into sin for the millionth time. Refresh them with these truths. Would you hold out these truths to those here who are not yet believers 
as promises written and signed by you, which can be received if they simply come. Would you give them faith, God? Would you give them faith? May they not despise your mercy. We thank you, Lord, in Christ's name.